KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Good morning. I'm Matt Hoffman in for Debbie Cruz. It's Tuesday, February 14th. A far-right extremist group with local ties. More on that next, but first, let's get to the headlines. We have an update for you on a story that we brought you last week. The IRS says that the California middle-class tax refund will not be subject to federal income tax. The agency says it will not tax the refund because it's considered disaster relief related to the COVID pandemic. They had previously told people to hold off on filing their taxes until they issued this guidance on the refunds. So now you can file away. The deadline is May 15th, and that's because of an extension from the storms that hit our state last month. A San Diego state building is temporarily closed while the university investigates a reported case of Legionnaire's disease in a campus community member. The disease is also known as Legionella pneumonia, and it can be carried in water systems. Symptoms include cough, fever, shortness of breath, muscle aches, and headaches. The university says that the person is away from campus and recovering. It's still unknown where the individual was exposed to the bacteria. The Exercise and Nutritional Sciences building at SDSU will be closed until testing is completed and it's cleared for re-entry. More strong winds, chilly temperatures, and possible rain is expected across the county. The National Weather Service also put out a wind advisory for the San Diego coastal areas, and that's until 10 p.m. tonight. Because of the weather, schools in the Mountain Empire Unified School District, they're going to be closed today. And schools in the Julian Union Elementary School District will have a late start. It's expected to be cold throughout the rest of the week in the county, and another storm is in the forecast for the weekend. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hey, hey, hey. This is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. Anti-Semitism and hate crimes are on the rise in the U.S., and some far-right groups are becoming more extreme. iNewsource investigative reporter Jill Castellano tells us about how one of those extremist groups is impacting San Diego. San Diego has been forced to face anti-Semitism head-on. In 2019, a man shot four people at a synagogue in Poway, a San Diego suburb, which spread fear across the Jewish community. Since then, the number of anti-Semitic incidents in the area has continued to climb. That includes acts of vandalism, harassment, and assault. 
a far-right extremist group connected to San Diego, is fueling incidents like these. It's called the Goyam Defense League. Over the past years, the Goyam Defense League has been active in San Diego. That's Fabian Perlov, the San Diego regional director of the Anti-Defamation League. She says the Goyam Defense League is a small network of white supremacists with dozens of supporters and thousands of online followers. You know, they've been spreading anti-Semitic myths and, and conspiracy theories. They say that Jews are responsible for 9-11 and the COVID pandemic. They also hold on racist and homophobic views. The group has monthly propaganda campaigns where it distributes flyers and displays signs with hateful messages. There were more than 100 of these events across the country last year. San Diego has been home to one of the group's most prominent figures, a Canadian immigrant named Robert Wilson. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Wilson provokes members of the public with hateful language and posts footage of the incidents on social media. Last year, Wilson and another member of the Goyam Defense League paraded around San Diego in a van covered with anti-Semitic messages, using a megaphone to shout at people on the street. They did it again in Beverly Hills a few months later. The Anti-Defamation League says even though the hateful activities might be protected as free speech, it's important to report them to the authorities because they can escalate. We know that words matter and their hateful rhetoric breeds more hateful rhetoric, especially online, and, and, and it can incite real-life violence. In late 2021, Wilson allegedly attacked his next-door neighbor while yelling homophobic slurs. He was charged with a hate crime and is facing up to three years in prison. Shortly after the incident, Wilson spoke to CBS 8 reporter David Gottfredson outside the courthouse. Are you in a feud with your neighbor? Uh, no. You didn't uh, yell homophobic slurs at your neighbor? There's no such thing as homophobia. But Wilson didn't stick around to face the charges. Last summer, he fled the country to Poland, where he continues to spread hate. Wilson went to the Auschwitz Memorial and held up an anti-Semitic sign with John Minadio, the Goyam Defense League's founder who's from the Bay Area. Minadio was arrested. In November, Wilson recorded a video of himself confronting U.S. military officers in Poland and using a racial slur. Show us what a tough guy you are. You got an AR-15? The San Diego County District Attorney's Office wouldn't say if it will extradite Wilson. The Anti-Defamation League says he's not a threat to San Diegans anymore. Uh, honestly, we don't miss him in San Diego. San Diego County is home to more than 100,000 Jewish people and 400 Holocaust survivors. The county's Board of Supervisors recently declared January 24th Holocaust Remembrance Day and agreed to build a commemorative exhibit in the county. Board member Nathan Fletcher said the exhibit is deeply needed. When we see hate speech and white supremacy, nationalism and anti-Semitism, like we are seeing growing across our communities and society, when we see these things, we're reminded of the work that remains to hold true to our promise in the aftermath of the Holocaust, the promise of never again. For KPBS, I'm my news source investigative reporter, Jill Castellano. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. The border wall at Friendship Park is back under construction. Reporter Jacob Ayer says that's not welcome news to advocates who want to keep it as a space for family and friends in the U.S. and Mexico to reconnect. 
Friendship Park is the historic binational meeting place at the westernmost end of the U.S.-Mexico border. It's long been divided by a border fence, and now U.S. Customs and Border Protection is building new, higher walls after temporarily pausing construction last August. John Fanastil is an advocate with Friends of Friendship Park. Uh, the construction of a 30-foot wall to replace that 18-foot fence will eliminate the views into the park. Uh, and many people will arrive down there without ever realizing that there's a public meeting place at all. CBP said its work will provide much needed improvements and that visitors will be able to access the park once construction is done, assuming it's operationally safe to do so. Friendship Park has been closed to the public on the U.S. side of the border since 2019. Replacement of the fencing is expected to take six months. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. Researchers from California are in Turkey to gather data on the massive earthquake that hit the region over a week ago. Education reporter M.G. Perez has more on their research. A team from the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute, based at UC Berkeley, is already on the ground, surveying destruction from the 7.8 earthquake half a world away. Much of the data collected there will be shared with scientists and engineers at home here in California. Lely Vandeninda is a professor of engineering at UC San Diego. Every time we correct the code and make things stronger or better or more resilient, it sometimes introduces a weaker section somewhere else. And the earthquake is known to find the weakness in our buildings. At some point, UCSD researchers will recreate last week's earthquake using the state-of-the-art shake table heavy hydraulic system in experiments on campus. M.G. Perez, KPBS News. Coming up, we're learning about a local company that makes specialty uniforms for motorcycle officers. We'll have that story and more coming up just after the break. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Motorcycle racing is a dangerous sport, and a North County company says its gear is the best in the world at protecting riders. Reporter Kitty Alvarado tells us what they're doing to protect those who protect and serve. 
That's the sound of a cutting machine at Motorport USA in Escondido. It's cutting Kevlar mesh one piece at a time. And then each piece is carefully sewn into a pair of protective pants that are made to order. Those pair of pants could protect a rider from serious injury. I had a, a lot of good friends that died racing motorcycles. Wayne Boyer is the owner of Motorport USA and a former competitive rider. But making competitive riding gear isn't his only business. Boyer says in the 90s he found another market in local police departments. I was really shocked to see that there weren't just cotton polyester shirts and pants that have virtually no tear abrasion strength. And these guys were crashing and getting serious injuries from not wearing protective clothing. Now, 75% of his business is making protective gear for motorcycle officers across the country. We have thread that has over 100 pound tear strength. We have five woven threads on the inside. It's called a safety lock stitch. So we have over a 2,000 pound seam strength. So these police officers can hit the ground at 100 miles an hour and the gear doesn't disintegrate. It protects, it holds together. The most recent customer for the family business is the San Diego Police Department. Motorcycle officer Matthew Zeitz proposed the uniform upgrade after doing a lot of research and talking to colleagues in other departments. So I spoke to one of the officers who worked on Chula Vista Police Department who went down at about 30, 35 miles an hour, slid across the road, uh, got up, and the pants weren't torn, ripped, scratched. They looked like he hadn't even been on the ground. So that's what sold me. Zeitz says it was long overdue. I have pictures of the motor unit from the 1920s, and it was essentially the same uniform. So it's very reassuring knowing that we're in a safer uniform, a uniform designed to be worn while we're riding a motorcycle. And a uniform designed specifically for the officer who will wear it. Hi, my name is Wayne. Joe. Hi, Joe. Good to meet you. Uh, Robbie, do you want to start with him? Robbie's going to help you out with your okay. fitting today. Members of Boyer's family all help with the process, taking orders, doing books, and even measuring the customers as they come in. Out-of-town customers can get measured online. Exact fit is crucial for protection, and there's no mass production here. Every uniform is made one at a time, which means it takes time. We have almost three and a half months wait for a police officer in places in order. Boyer says he would rather take his time and make sure things are done right. There was a time when manufacturing was done by other companies, but then one of those suits failed. Boyer says using the wrong thread meant a customer got hurt. We found out that the company ran out of thread, so they just grabbed a regular cotton poly thread. So basically we really couldn't control the manufacturing where when it was in-house, we could make sure that it's made with the right threads. Everything is correct. So now all the work is done in Escondido by employees like Reina Valdovinos, who runs the cutting machine, making the perfectly sized pieces. When I drive in, I saw people in the police wearing the uniforms, and I love it. That one is that I spent 30 years here. <laughs> It costs $3,100 to outfit an officer with several uniforms, but those uniforms will last for years and could save lives. We get about four motors a month to crash, and uh, they'll come in and shake my hand and thank me personally. I've even had wives and kids of the officers thank me many times, and it really does make me feel great. Really appreciate that. Kitty Alvarado, KPBS News.
Under a Baseball Sky is a world premiere play commissioned by the Old Globe. The play is about baseball, and it's inspired by the Logan Heights community here in San Diego. It's from the team who brought us the 2018 play American Mariachi. Playwright Jose Cruz Gonzalez and director James Vasquez spoke with KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Here's their conversation. So starting with Jose, why did you choose sports and specifically baseball for a play? I chose baseball and community to tell this story. You know, for me, baseball is such an Americana thing in terms of, you know, its roots. And, you know, those roots also connect with the immigrant community here in the United States. And I thought, there's a story there. And it's now, you know, I had to find it. And in my research, when I began to look into it, I realized that there wasn't a whole lot of information about our Latinx community and baseball. Uh, When you listen to Ken Burns or watch his documentary on baseball, we really don't exist. And I thought, I want to talk about that. And as I dug into it, I began to realize there were much more than just baseball. And so that journey would would, uh, eventually send me down to San Diego, where I would um, encounter this community in Logan Heights that really was represented a lot of communities across this country and how baseball played an important part in those communities. And James, what is your connection to baseball? Oh, gosh, I grew up playing baseball. You know, my dad, my dad is many, many wonderful things, a teacher, a poet and a baseball coach. And he was one of my very first baseball coaches, starting with T-ball. And, you know, I played up until I was about 12 And then I broke my father's heart when I discovered tap shoes and transitioned into theater. But we watched baseball all the time growing up. And, you know, to the point that I don't know that I ever had a favorite team. We just watched the game and loved it. So it's been a part of my life always. So the setting is based on the Mexican-American community in San Diego's Logan Heights. James, can you talk a little bit about Logan Heights and and what it is about that place that's connected in this work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I grew up here in San Diego and again, connecting with my father, my father was a part of an organization when I was a child called Community Arts Center. And it brought artists from all over the country, but primarily San Diego. Um, And we spent a lot of time down in uh, the Logan Heights area, in the downtown area, just celebrating that community and the arts in that community. So I I, I really grew up watching a, a community build itself and support um, each other uh, in that, that growth of itself. And, you know, Logan Heights and Barrio Logan, I mean, talk about roots in San Diego. They really sort of those communities celebrate what San Diego is about. Um, And we got to take our cast to Logan Heights for a a field trip to a very short field trip, but just to get a little sense of what that community was like. And I mean, I think what we all came back with was uh, celebration, you know, walking through Chicano Park and seeing those murals. It was about honoring and celebration we went um, and got pandulce and and talked to the the men who ran the shop and 
It was about celebration and each other. So I think that that's really what we're we're wanting to celebrate with this story. This play, it follows these two main characters. There's a younger one described as a troublemaker and his elderly neighbor. Jose, can you tell us about these two and why you chose this intergenerational friendship at the heart of the story? Yeah. You know, we have a 16-year-old boy who's gotten in trouble at school, and it's just, you know, devastated him, and for so many reasons, for what happened at school. And of course, you have this uh, elderly neighbor, one really the sort of the foundation of that community, one of the earliest uh, arrivals, you know, fleeing a, a war in Mexico to coming to this community and being really its mother hen, if you will, of, of helping to keep a community vibrant and alive and, you know, thriving. But there's a cost to her, her sort of adopting this community and helping it, you know, raise it. And so these two wounded souls, you know, are sort of forced together and they do not get along at all, which causes all sorts of sparks in our story. But one of the common threads that these two find is baseball, their love of baseball. And it's through that lens that they find friendship. And in that friendship, they also find healing. And so to me, that's been the beauty of, um, of this story. I have one more question. How do you stage a play about a game that you really can't play indoors? James? Oh, gosh. With lots of theater magic and imagination. <laughs> um, I love working in the round. I think it's one of the most magical uh, creative spaces to tell a story in. And this play, Jose has written a, a, a wildly beautiful and in some ways cinematic story. Um, and I, I have loved that challenge of finding a way in the round to, to, to tell this story and make it flow and make it dissolve into each other and um, uh, really move forward. And within the baseball game, I mean, you know, come see it, come see it, because we transform this stage throughout the course of the play into a baseball field and the game happens, you know? We uh we're throwing pitches, we're hitting balls, um, we're striking people out, um, and we're having a blast doing it. And theater in the round means there's no back wall, so the audience sits all around, much like a baseball field. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Under a Baseball Sky is currently in low-cost previews at the Old Globe, and it officially opens on Thursday. It's on stage through March 12th. That's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Matt Hoffman. Thanks so much for listening and have a happy Valentine's Day.